Welcome to episode 95 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, and this is an introduction to deep sky objects. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for everyone else who likes going out under the stars. How is your deep sky observing plans coming along for the summer, Shane? Well, I, I, you know, I have such an itch to do some deep sky observing that I can't wait. Yeah. yeah. Um, I hope we have good weather. I hope we have uh, the ability to get out and, and do as much observing as we can. You know, last, well, currently, you know, under pandemic, um, we really, like, I know myself, I really haven't gotten out to, uh, you know, really dark skies. Um, but this year, even if there are restrictions and all of that kind of stuff in place, I'll just go set up in a farmer's field somewhere yep. and, uh, and observe, like, uh, I'll make a, a far greater effort to get out this year, no matter what the conditions are. Yeah. And I've, uh, been doing likewise. There's, there's a nice set of fields about a 10 minute drive from my house and I go out there and, uh, and set up and sometimes it feels a bit sketchy, especially in, in the late summer when, when the, uh, whatever the crop that was growing out there was about armpit deep and, and I'm just on a dirt track right in the middle of this. Um, you can hear like animals out there moving around in it, but, uh, anyway, I focus on those deep sky objects. I'm hunting up overhead and, uh, you know, the worries, uh, they disappear into the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Get distracted by the stars. There you go. So we've mentioned deep sky, deep sky objects, deep sky observing many times, and mm -hmm. last year, and that was our first year doing this podcast, we're just sort of getting into our, our plans for the second year of this podcast. Last year was sort of a, a bit of an anomaly for us because we mostly did planetary observing because all the planets were on display and we had a beautiful Mars opposition. Then we had the, uh, the comet Neowise came around in the summer, which uh, again is a, is a solar system object. So we're really focused uh, on solar system observing, eh? Yeah. Yeah. It was a great year for that. Um, like we had some awesome observations of solar system stuff, but like you said, uh, I don't think our observing is usually tilted in that way in terms of, uh, quantity, you know, normally we yeah. are doing far more deep sky observing than we would solar system. Yeah. Um, but that's how it worked out and it was, it was fun. I enjoyed it, but yeah. you're right. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned the term deep sky objects or deep sky observing, but we really haven't talked too much about what that actually is or, or what we mean by it. Um, you know, another common abbreviation, which we probably inadvertently used is, is DSOs, you know, again, yeah. deep sky objects, uh, you, you know, you'll see that reference quite a bit on the web or, or in magazines and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we do some very light planning sessions. We, we have an idea list that, that we have shared between us. And one of the things that, uh, that you put on the idea list, Shane, was, was to sort of have some deep sky tours of constellations, which uh, it, sort of in a way, it's kind of strange that it took us um, the better part of a year to get to these, because primarily this, this is actually what you and I do. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah yeah it, looking back on it it does seem odd right you know but you know i think we focused a lot on just like topical stuff what that we were doing yeah. which was a lot of the the solar system observing so yeah so in this episode we're actually gonna we're actually gonna talk about deep sky objects and deep sky and, and sort of some of the deep sky observing history and uh you know i i think this will um sort of act as a bit of a primer or, or a base um, for people that uh, may be wondering what, what we are talking about, although I, I'm guessing that most people are familiar uh, with these uh, terms. 
um, already because um, certainly these have been among our, our more uh, our, our more downloaded episodes. Yeah, yeah, they're very popular, and and this is a little bit out of sequence. We probably should have led with this episode and then followed with you know the the tour through Orion, Taurus, and Perseus, yeah. and then our last one, which. There's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, small, well, Orion, but, but then a lot of smaller, uh, you know, lesser known constellations. But uh, anyway, never, nevertheless, it, uh, it's probably good to have this out there because there are some folks that were probably wondering yeah. what the heck we mean. Yeah. So what do we mean when we talk about the deep sky, Shane? <laughs> well, you know, I think we, we kind of loosely addressed it. So I, I think there's two categories, or this is how I think of it. You have your solar system stuff. So that would be, you know, obviously the planets. Uh, you have um, comets that will come through. Um, there's the asteroids. asteroids. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that um, we observe occasionally. Um, and then moons, not just our moon, but sometimes the moons around the other planets. Yeah. Um, yep. And uh, there's, a, there's a star as well in our solar system that we'll look at occasionally too. Yeah. Uh, the sun, obviously. So, you know, you have all of that stuff and, and that's kind of one category in my mind. And then you have all of the stuff that is outside of our solar system. And then that usually gets wrapped up under the category of deep sky objects. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's your star clusters, your nebula. Uh, most, if not all of uh, what you'll see in those two categories are within our galaxy, uh, mm -hmm. the Milky Way. Um, and then there are, uh, you know, double stars as well, which I guess would be a, a deep sky object, variable stars, which you and I, neither of us observe variables really. So we don't talk too much about that. Yeah. Um, so basically any star stuff. Um, and then there's galaxies, you know, outside of the Milky Way, which would also be a, a DSO. Yeah. So when we, when we go observing and kind of like, I, I kind of put this together in such a way that sort of reflects, um, how, how we observe and our interaction with the deep sky, which is probably reflective of a lot of other uh, amateurs out there. So uh, when we get to uh, a, a dark site and, and uh, you know, it's starting to get dark and, you know, we can see the Milky Way coming out, like we'll kind of just stand there and look at the Milky Way. Yeah. When you get to know your location, so like wherever you like to go for deep sky observing, you'll get to know sort of what the sky looks like uh, on a dark night, um, just because You'll be familiar with, you know, the, if there is light pollution um, or, you know, any other things that maybe take away from the sky or enhance it, you'll get to know it. And uh, like when we go to grasslands, just looking at the Milky Way as it's becoming visible, mm -hmm. we usually have a, a pretty good idea of this is going to be an average night or a great night or a bad night, just based on uh, what we're able to see within the Milky Way with our naked eyes. Yeah. Um, but it is, you know, it is one of the, one of my favorite things in astronomy is actually, you know, you've got all your gear set up. Um, the sun is, you know, getting close to sunset and then you start advancing through those early stages of the night, you know, uh, twilight, astronomical twilight, darkness, and then just seeing the stars, uh, slowly materialize. And then beyond that, seeing the Milky Way start to fill the sky and, uh, you know, become the most prominent object in the sky. And did you ever notice like with the Milky Way, like when you're looking up there, so the Milky Way is our, is our home galaxy and we're inside it. And from a dark site, it basically looks like a, like a giant band of clouds stretching from uh, the Southern horizon up overhead mm -hmm. and sort of fading out a bit, a bit in the North. And of course, when we're, when we're out there and doing public events uh, during those times when we can do that, 
um, oftentimes people say, oh, I didn't know that was the Milky Way. I just thought it was clouds. Yeah. Yeah. And, th- and that's a great description, Chris. You know, it, it, it does kind of look like a cloudy area um, because it, you don't really make out individual stars. You just like, you see like kind of a, um, well, a cloudiness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it, depending on, on where you are in terms of how dark is your sky, um, it can be an exceptionally wide band of this kind of cloudiness um, at, at a real dark site. Yeah. Do you ever notice that when you're looking at the Milky Way, though, that sometimes like off the Milky Way or maybe there's like a particular spot in the Milky Way that appears like it's still like a fuzzy sort of cloudy spot, but it appears a little bit brighter. Do you ever notice that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like there's definitely some patches that are, are more luminous than the rest of it. Mm hmm. Well, you're not the only one who noticed those. <laughs> oh, <gee. laughs> so, so people from, from all over the world and all, all different backgrounds and, uh, and cultures, um, they also noticed these, these uh, fuzzy spots, or uh, as some of them call them, uh, stars with tails or milky spots uh, all over the sky. And uh, it was early individuals like Eudoxus, uh, Aratus and uh, Hipparchus uh, that kind of st- first started putting some of these down. In fact, Aristotle put a few of them down uh, as well in, in some of their works. Uh, these are early works on astronomy. Th- these aren't really early astronomers. I'm always uh, corrected by, by my, my historian friends when I, when I try to say that. Um, but eventually a person named Ptolemy came around and uh, this was during about the first century AD and he put... Um, all the stars from Hipparchus and, and the others and, and some of his own observations into uh, like a bit of a first star catalog uh, that, that we have remaining today. There may have been others prior to this, but this is sort of the, the earliest surviving uh, one. And inside that, so this is the first one that contains these sort of things. Inside that, he lists some of these um, misty or milky spots. So, um, want to take a gather maybe what some of the first sort of sort of misty or milky spots Ptolemy uh, noted that we know today are actually deep sky objects like nebulas, clusters, maybe galaxies. What do you think the, the first ones are there? Um, my guess would be um, clusters. Yeah, yep. exactly. And so that's what they are. So the first ones that he noted and put in there, and these were actually known prior to him were the uh, double cluster and then M44 preoccepting cancer. Um, and then he did add another one, which is Messier 7. And that's actually known as Ptolemy's cluster now in Scorpius. That's why it's called that. Mm, okay, okay. So kind of moving, moving ahead here in sort of our, our brief history of, of early deep sky objects, um, we have uh, the 964 Book of Fixed Stars by Persian astronomer, uh, al-Sufi. And, I, and I've mentioned uh, this Persian astronomer before um, because he added Messier 31 uh, as a deep sky object. And of course, uh, this is the Andromeda galaxy. Yeah. And, Looks like a big cheeseburger in the sky. Yeah. Kind of sort of thing. And you can actually see this like you and I have seen it many times just with our eye alone. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And it's huge. Yeah. And so other people had noticed this as well, even before the telescope. Of course, they didn't know it was a galaxy at that time. It was just another one of these sort of fuzzy or milky mm-hmm. spots. 
Um, and then the other thing that, that he uh, stumbled across, which does look like a tiny little tight fuzzy spot uh, up there in uh, what we now call Sajida, um, is the coat hanger cluster. He actually you know, jotted that down as, as a particularly small and, and fuzzy spot near those stars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, right? Cause these, these collection of, of either, you know, clusters or galaxies, um, for, for folks, you know, in, in, you know, that time period and even before that, you know, would look at the sky. And I just think it's fascinating that, you know, these, these patterns or these, uh, irregularities were noted and then also observed to come and go, you know, that it wasn't always in the sky, but it would come back the next year sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of interesting to note, um, that some, some observers made no mention of them. Um, like Tycho Brahe never mentioned the Andromeda galaxy, but he did talk about a whole pile of fuzzy double stars down in Capricornus of all places, which I always thought was, was kind of strange. Some of those ones, I think, I think you, you've even observed Shane. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So then eventually we get along to uh, Galileo in, in around 1609, eventually pointing a telescope uh, at the night sky. And one of the first things that he pointed his telescope at was M44. Of course, he didn't discover M44. M44 was cataloged by Ptolemy and known long, even, even long before that. There, there's references to it and some uh, early didactic poems by Aratus and others. Um, but what happened when he pointed that telescope there, and this was really a, a, a big revolution, was that he was able to see the individual stars in the M44 star cluster. So he was the, you know, as noted as being probably the first person who, who ever resolved that into stars. And uh, of course, now that that brought to light that these misty spots were clusters of stars, at least one way or another, or very likely clusters of stars. Now, they originally thought that that the nebulas were simply just uh, smaller stars or maybe further away. And uh, of course, we now know they're, they're gas and can't be resolved into stars. But th- at the time, they thought that all, all of these misty spots could be resolved into stars for want of uh, larger telescopes with sufficient aperture to do so. Yeah, that's, uh, that's so interesting. You know, the, I can only imagine like the awe of, uh, you know, pointing a telescope up at the sky uh, for the first time and not really knowing what you'd see, but being amazed at what you did see. And what's really neat, and, and this is kind of the one thing, and I, I've mentioned some of the other projects that this is just personal projects, but just fun projects that I work on is, is to kind of go and, and look at how some of the early uh, telescopists were, were approaching the sky. And I think because, and I don't believe, uh, and I am, you know, and sort of, I've gone to the ancient telescope museum um, there in Florence and had a look at all the old telescopes. I think when I went there, I, I sent you all the photos from there at one point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, none of those telescopes had finder scopes on them. Some of them were sort of telescopes on telescopes, but they all had really small fields of view. So what these early observers uh, would do is they would go out and they would just look for new fuzzy spots mm-hmm. um, or spots of interest. And they would point the telescopes there. They could kind of pan around a bit, but they, it wasn't like using a pair of binoculars or like the telescopes we have with low power fields or larger telescopes where you might have a finder scope or something like that. They would just kind of go out and say, oh, there's another fuzzy spot. Oh, I'll point the telescope at that. Now, most of the time, these objects were just uh, random groupings of stars or tight knots of, 
uh, Milky Way. There really wasn't any real association there, but it's still kind of interesting to, uh, to walk through that. Yeah. And some of those early telescopes too, well, maybe not so much the early ones, but ones that uh, did some of the discovery and research were not easy telescopes to maneuver. You know, it wasn't like the panning that we can do nowadays. Um, no. Some of these were huge, you know, engineering feats uh, to have them be able to point up at the sky and move them around. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, there'd be pulleys and winches and all that kind of stuff to, to align or move the telescope. Yeah. And, and the other thing is with these early telescopes, and I should maybe dig out some of my photos. Um, the, the thing that really struck me is, is the, the beautiful designs on the exterior, they, they look more like a beautiful sort of antique wrapping paper mm-hmm. on the, on the exterior and then the interior. So, you know, a lot of the time you look at them and they kind of look like uh, wrapping paper tubes, really like one is, is kind of e- easily led to that. But then, uh, then when you actually look at a cross section and, and they have some cross sections there uh, at the museum de Galileo, and uh, in, inside there, you can see that they have these slats, like the interior slats on the hull of a ship is what, is what they reminded me of. Um, and, you know, you think these are just very small tubes with telescopes of, uh, of apertures of, of an inch or, you know, give or take, you know, they, they, they weren't very big at all. They're long telescopes, but, um, you know, they were very, very detailed in construction uh, and design. What, what we would sort of take for granted today to be able to go to the plumbing section of, uh, of a hardware store and, and get a, a two or three meter, you know, plastic pipe or aluminum pipe, pipe or something. Um, they, they were building things, uh, you know, on the order of a scale and, and magnitude that uh, hadn't occurred to me, the, the mm-hmm. detail that, uh, that went into these. It's quite spectacular. Yeah, yeah. Um... I should, I should dig up those photos you sent me actually, cause that was quite a while ago, but um, I, I do love those old telescopes. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes, and I, I, sometimes I feel bad when people talk and, and certainly telescopes have improved in optical quality. I mean, that's going to happen over the course of 400 plus years. But um, when people say, oh, well, these were kind of like junk telescopes or whatever. And it's kind of like, it's, I kind of feel like it's a little bit insulting to the craftspeople that, <laughs> that built those because certainly they were, they were, you know, working at the height of, uh, of their abilities and, and technologies and, uh, and those construction methodologies, re- regardless of, you know, of the, uh, what we would now maybe see as, as a, uh, as, you know, low optical quality, um, you know, they were actually able to produce things that actually could see moons of Jupiter or, or rings of Saturn and, and resolve clusters uh, like M44 in ways that, that were never done before. But maybe we'll get back to the deep sky objects. That's sort of yes, our, our yes. tour of a little bit of history, <laughs> a little bit of a history. I want to give a little bit of a background on where some of these first objects came from. Because when I started in astronomy, I really didn't have that much of an idea of those things as condensed down. But if people want to go through and see kind of the, the book of those, those early objects, um, if you go and, and grab a copy of Johann uh, Baer's Uranometria 1603, being about six years before Galileo started using the telescope nighttime sky, uh, in Uranometria 1603, he has those objects marked in there, uh, which is also something most, most people aren't aware of. Um, anyway, people can go through that. But Shane, what are star clusters? We'll go through. We'll go through star clusters, nebula, and galaxies, and that will count as our 
history and then introduction to the objects. What are sure. star clusters? So clusters uh, come in two categories. You have open clusters and globulars. Um, I'll start with globulars. Well, maybe actually I'll start with both of these are collections of stars within galaxies and they have a gravitational connection. Um, mm-hmm. Open or sorry, globular clusters uh, get their name because they're often like a round ball, like a globe of stars. Mm-hmm. Um, M13, the great Hercules cluster is one of the more famous globulars out there. There's a whole bunch of others. Um, and they're often the oldest stars or some of the oldest stars, um, within the galaxy, uh, they collect in these, in these groupings, mm-hmm. um, open clusters are very, um, very random in terms of their appearance. They don't have a, uh, like a common, like global globular sort of, uh, appearance. Uh, they can take on any mm-hmm. sort of structure or shape. Um, there's usually, uh, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's usually fewer stars in open clusters. Globulars can have like hundreds of yeah, thousands that's correct. Uh, and open clusters may yeah. have a dozen to a hundred. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure there's some with, with more than that, but they're, they're usually far less in terms of, uh, quantity of stars. Um, and, yeah. uh, again, they, they come in all sorts of different patterns and, and they can sometimes be a little harder to, to find, you know, because, they're not just this round ball of stars. There, there are a lot of close stars um, in the sky, and and you can usually the way I usually find them or identify them is, you know, as you're panning, all of a sudden the eyepiece kind of fills up with a bunch of stars, and you know, then I pause, yeah. take a look at where I'm at, and, and try to figure out which open cluster I'm I'm probably viewing. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the open clusters, they all tend to live in the, in the disk of our galaxy because they form from the nebula, the nebulae that are, that are concentrated in the, the galactic disk of the Milky Way. So when you're looking up and down the Milky Way, um, you know, within so many degrees of the Milky Way, that's where like the vast majority of them are, although like things like M44 are off Milky Way, but, uh, uh, but the majority of, of the clusters at nebula are located in in that that band um and the open clusters as they orbit the the disk of the milky way like they're like like us they're in orbit around the milky way uh center and it takes i don't know how many thousands and thousands tens of thousands of years it does take to go around but um they eventually kind of pull apart right the clusters are kind of disintegrating in a way and did you know that our sun is actually uh, part of a cluster i mean we were born our sun was born in a cluster with a bunch of other stars. Hmm. No, I did not know that. Yeah. It's kind of, it's sort of a, like this strange sort of thing. And I, I can't remember which ones they are. They're, I think it's, it's either the last two in the handle of the big dipper, or maybe it's the two in the, in the bowl, of the big dipper. Um, but anyway, some of the stars in the big dipper, we were born, our star, our sun was born with those stars. And then, then there's a few that are spread out over like the whole sky now, like Ophiuchus and Scorpius. And then there's a couple in the Southern hemisphere. And I, I, one of the things I always thought that would be neat, although some of them are really faint, um, would be to hunt down uh, all those stars. Um, there's, yeah. there's a name for them. I can't remember the name. It's like the Ursa Major Moving Group or something like that. Anyway, they're spread out over the the whole sky now, uh, simply because um, at one point in time they were very close, and because their proper motion would be relatively high because of this, um, they do appear to move uh, faster and and in amongst the stars. So they're able to kind of drift apart and travel uh, all over uh, like our apparent night sky. 
yeah, that would be really cool to observe all of those. And then with the globular cluster, there, there's a bit of a, I'm not going to get into it, but there is a bit of a Canadian connection there. Um, there was a lot of globular cluster research done uh, here in Canada. And uh, one of the discoveries uh, that was at least at least in part, uh, you know, sort of made here uh, was that uh, the globular clusters are in a, in a bit of a halo around the outside of our, of our galaxy. So you don't find as many, although there's certainly some, you don't find as many uh, right along the band uh, of the Milky Way. They tend to be, you know, uh, halo uh, objects that, that are sort of, um, you know, in these higher, higher orbits. So you can see, uh, you know, globular clusters way off, way off the Milky Way. And certainly we have uh, lots of good examples of that. Like, uh, you know, although Hercules is kind of like a summer constellation, you think of how far M13 is from the uh, sort of from that bright Milky Way band um, or other, other objects of, of that nature. Yeah, right on. All right. So how about nebula? Mm. What, uh, what are nebula, Shane? <laughs> well, again, uh, that's kind of the umbrella category. There's a lot of subcategories of nebula that we'll get into. Um, but really, they're, they're gas, gaseous um, areas within our Milky Way. Um, some of them are star-forming mm-hmm. regions. Um, some of them are the result of a star going supernova. Um, and some of them are not even visible there. You, you can only detect them by the lack of starlight because they're, they're blocking starlight from, from hitting us, uh, or, or, you know, from our perspective on earth, we're not able to see some stars because there's this cloud in front of them. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So, uh, let's start with bright nebula. So these, these are the ones that are, that are emission nebula, um, and they basically, what they're doing is they're giving off photons from the gases as the gases uh, become excited. Now, as part of that excitement process, uh, sometimes there's star formation going on at, at the center of those. Um, but the light is actually coming off of the gas itself. And now, like I'm not an astrophysicist or anything like that. I'm just an amateur astronomer. So people got to keep that in mind. But basically what happens is as uh, stars begin to form, the nebula gets so hot, um, the radiation uh, from these new stars excites the gas. Like it actually mm-hmm. like gets the gas kind of agitated up. And then the gas itself begins to glow and, and give off photons. And they call this process ionization. Uh, and because this is uh, an emission nebula uh, and this ionization process occurring, uh, it's often referred to as a quote unquote H2 or HII uh, region. So sometimes you're, you're looking uh, at an object in, in a catalog, and it's going to say this is a, a bright H2 region. And typically, if, if it's saying that, you can use a, a nebula filter of one kind or another in order to view that. Yeah. And I think the Eagle Nebula uh, is, a, is a good example of this. Um, people mm. may know it from the Hubble image, the, the pillars of creation. Um, you know, there's stars being born there that are exciting the gases and, and you know, illuminating them, but causing, uh, you know, a beautiful image. Yeah. And, uh, another one would be like, uh, M42, the, mm-hmm. the great Orion nebula. Uh, you can actually, uh, you, in the previous episode, uh, you were talking about trying to observe some of the, uh, stars in, in a little star cluster that's kind of being birthed inside of the Orion nebula. Um, and as, as part of that birthing, uh, of stars, this, this nebula has become excited and it's giving off photons. So that's how you can actually see the, uh, the nebulosity, uh, they're glowing 
uh, in space. But we also have uh, reflection nebula. Now, I, I've always thought thought of reflection nebula. They're, they're a little bit more difficult to see and they don't respond to nebula filters. Um, so we'll just touch on them briefly. But, but the main ones that I think of when I think of reflection nebula are like the Pleiades and uh, part of the Trifid Nebula there in, in M20 and the M21 area in, uh, in, in that area, just, just above and to the right of the lagoon there in, in Sagittarius. But the, the reflection nebula uh, is simply uh, light that's being reflected from nearby stars. And as such, these nebula look blue, much for the same reason that the daytime sky looks blue. It's just basically uh, light reflecting off of particles in space. And, uh, and it's kind of giving that, that blue sort of cast. Other ones that, you know, like one of, the, one of the more famous ones is perhaps like the Witch Head Nebula IC, I think it's 2118 there uh, in Eridanus, just to the right of Rigel. Um, I've never quite been convinced that, that I've been able to see that. Um, and then maybe like some of the high uh, galactic Mendel Wilson uh, type objects would, would be, uh, I guess, in, in a way like reflection type uh, nebulae as well. Um, but, you know, uh, for, the, for the most part, um, the reflection ones are a little bit difficult to see. But I have seen the nebula there in the Pleiades uh, quite a few times, the Merope Nebula, just off the brightest star in the Pleiades. Have you ever seen the Merope Nebula, Shane? Yeah, yeah, I have in my uh, in my twelve inch um, uh, Newtonian that I used to own for sure. Um, mm -hmm. What I find interesting about the nebula in the Pleiades is a lot of people report seeing it, but I think what it often is is just um, you know the, those stars are quite bright. And yeah. If you have any like if your optics have any dirtiness to them, which most mm -hmm. optics do, right? They do collect dust, and you know just it's the nature of it. Um, typically I think what people are seeing is actually just light scatter due to dirty optics. Um, because when you, when you have that and you put a bright star in the field, there's a little bit of a glow, like it almost looks a little nebulous. Um, so you have to yeah. be careful. I think with the Pleiades, like you said, it's, it's really around Merope is probably the only nebulosity that you'll detect visually. It's, uh, it's quite challenging and, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it, it, it's not often visible and, and typically you need a little bit of aperture for that too. Yeah, although I have seen it, my uh, I've seen it uh, pretty well in my five-inch refractor. Yeah, and yeah. I, I find with the uh, with the refractor optics, it's not it's not so uh, so challenging. I got to try it. I feel like I did see it in my sixty millimeter as well oh, um, wow. from very dark skies, though. Yeah, but uh, I got I got to try the the hundred millimeter this summer. But sort of moving along to mm -hmm. our to our last tip. So we talked about uh, Nebula being um, a mission. Those are the ones you can use nebula filters on and they're, they're bright because they're giving off their own photons. We talked about reflection because uh, they're reflecting light from nearby stars. And then we'll talk about dark nebulae. So what are uh, dark nebulae, Shane? Well, this is, this is the, the nebula that I was referring to about you, the, the only way you observe these is by not seeing something. <laughs> so, so dark nebulae are, are gases up in space um, but they're not illuminated or they're not, uh, they're not giving off any light. So the way you detect these is in absence of stars in a star field. Um, easier said than done because mm -hmm. not every star field is full of stars. But in and around, um, say, the Milky Way, there are some regions where all of a sudden there's an absence of stars or starlight. And what that is is this dark nebulae gas that's in between our vantage point on Earth and the stars behind it. 
kind of kind of reminds me of what Lisa Simpson said when she was referring to the best jazz is you have to listen to the notes that aren't being played. <laughs> so true. And and you're quite a dark nebula person, so you're you're definitely a good person to speak on this topic. Yeah, so yeah, I am I am. I I've done a lot of dark nebula observing. It's uh kind of fascinating stuff and um one of the one of the early people uh who, who cataloged this was E. Barnard. But, uh, but I should note that the dark nebulae um, have been known about since, you know, well before the invention of, of the telescope, the, uh, the uh, indigenous peoples of, of Australia actually had uh, constellation-like patterns made out of uh, some of the dark nebulae that you can see down there with your, uh, or I should say down under with your unaided eye. Um, so they are something that, that has been, uh, witnessed since, uh, since early times. Um, however, Barnard was, was the first to actually go about kind of cataloging these, um, through photographic means. And, uh, and there's a great story about E.E. E. Barnard, uh, trying to do the, the photographs he had taken, taken apart the telescope, taken it down to Mount Wilson, sort of had reconstructed it there. And, uh, there was kind of like, uh, he would stay out all night doing these photographs. And then during a period of time when he had more clouds um, than were useful <laughs> and he had to stop doing photographs and kind of kicked back and was just kind of looking at the sky, it kind of dawned on him uh, what these, these dark features likely were, which are uh, simply clouds out in space blocking the background uh, stars. So it was kind of like one of those really early thoughts that, hey, wait a second, I think, you know, there's something, there's something larger going on here. These aren't just uh, voids in space. Uh, it's actually material between us uh, and the background stars. And, uh, you know, eventually like that path led along to, uh, to the discovery that, uh, that, that we're in a galaxy and there's other, other galaxies uh, out there in the universe, uh, you know, which happened uh, in pretty short order uh, after that. But uh, I always think one of the, one of the, Greatest travesties is that the Horsehead Nebula in Orion is probably the most famous dark nebula because it's also famously difficult to see. It it actually looks like a horse's head, um, pretty unmistakable. If you showed somebody a photo of this, um, that's what it looks like. And then unfortunately, uh, it's best viewed through uh, pretty big telescopes, and and even then, like I've seen it a few times, and it, it it's really difficult to see. And that's the only kind of real pleasure in seeing it is that it's just so hard to see. It's cool to see it. Um, but there's all kinds of dark nebulas that are really easy to see. Like one of my, one of my favorite ones is just off of Terra Z, which is um, in the Northern part of Aquila. And Terra Z is just above and to the right of Altair, which is uh, sort of the bottom star in the summer triangle. Anyway, just off of Terra Z is Barnard's E. And you can see this easily in binoculars from any, anywhere decent as far as locations go, where you're, even when you're just able to see the Milky Way, you can actually begin to see uh, the components of Barnard's. Did you ever see Barnard's E, Shane? Yeah, yeah. Well, we've looked at it multiple times and uh, it, it, it yeah. looks like what it's, you know, its name. It looks like a, a capitalized E. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And so uh, the darkness of these objects is just due to dust grains within clouds and space and uh, really the absence of uh, visually uh, ionizing gas and uh, or reflections. So they're not uh, 
visual uh, in in the respect that the emission and reflection nebula are. Although, like um, one of the things that they've recently discovered in the past uh, several years is that uh, they do glow like in infrared light and stuff like that. So they're you know maybe calling them dark might be a little bit of a misnomer. They're mm-hmm. they're dark in in the visual uh, spectrum, but often they're called and this is sort of maybe this is more of a scientific term, but often they're referred to as molecular clouds or parts of molecular clouds, which are basically um, huge areas of nebulae. And some of these areas might be bright, some might be dark. Good examples of this are in and around Orion, where you have like the Orion Nebula, and then you have like the Horsehead Nebula, and you have, you know, uh, other reflection and, and emission nebula all, all in the same area. So, you, you might get uh, like a molecular cloud that contains all three types of nebulosity. And sort of one, one of the methods um, that, that we're trying to convey here is that when you're observing and you, you might be looking at or for all sort of three different types um, of these nebula up, up in the nighttime sky at the same time. And in fact, recently I've had some correspondence with people who were trying to determine, you know, I, I wrote an article and they were trying to determine what I meant by molecular cloud, but uh, really, that's all it is. It's just an area that can contain all three uh, types of, of nebulosity. And uh, that, that's really all there is to it. Hmm. Very cool. How about planetary nebula, Shane? You're, I think of, when I think of planetary nebula, I think of you. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> do, I, do I observe them a lot? Or? <laughs> I don't know. There, there's, there's, a, there's a joke about a donut there with a bright center. But anyway. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so planetary nebula is um, has some similarities to like a globular cluster. So, um, you know, a globular has its name because it looks like a globe, and planetary nebula have uh, the name planetary because they, in some regards, resemble a planet or, or like the roundness again. Um, so, planetary nebula are usually the end of a star's life. Um, and the star uh, ejects a lot of its matter or its mass. Um, and it, it starts to leave the star all kind of at the same speed. And all of this stuff leaving this star turns into um, a gas that's usually illuminated um, and uh, becomes really, you know, it, it, they can be striking objects to look at through a telescope. Um, one of the most famous ones that is even somewhat light pollution proof, although not 100%, is the Ring Nebula in uh, Lyra, M57. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing uh, to see in the summertime. Um, one that requires more of a darker sky would be M1, uh, the Crab Nebula in Taurus, which is visible right now. Yeah. And I think there's about like, there's more than a thousand of these planetary nebula that have been discovered, um, which is kind of neat because they, wow. uh, you know, they, they only last so long. So these are the result of stars that are around the same size as our sun, eventually giving off their material in, into space. And that's actually what we're, uh, what we're looking at is that there's this leftover star and then there's this material uh, that, that had come off the uh, sort, of, sort of the original star, which had uh, grown in, into the size of a red giant uh, during, during the process and then given off that material. And that material goes into space and kind of material will float out into space and then the process uh, will will repeat over the millennia. Yeah, there. I saw recently. Um, it, it's an animated image or GIF or whatever of um, of M one, the Crab Nebula, but it's like a collection oh, yeah. of Hubble images over the last twenty years or something like that of that nebula. I saw but, that. Yeah, yeah. And you can and, see it flash. 
Yeah. And, and, and because it's uh, animated, you, you sort of see this thing evolving and, and slightly growing over this period of time, which is super cool. Because yeah. again, like anything we look at other than say Jupiter's moons and if, you know, a couple other solar system objects, they really, they really don't move too much, if at all, um, especially, um, yeah. you know, hard to observe or hard to notice the change, uh, you know, as a visual observer. So to see that Hubble image was, was really neat. It just, it reminds you how dynamic and how alive uh, the universe really is. Yeah. So uh, let's move along to galaxies here. So it's always interested. I, you know, when I was first getting into astronomy, I was, I was uh, always interested in astronomy um, but when I really first started doing it, I was, I was studying philosophy at university. I was actually taking a course in, uh, in Immanuel Kant. And uh, he, uh, in one of his works, actually talked about island universes. And he had this little bit of a theory on the fact that uh, some of these uh, nebulae or misty spots up there were whole collections of stars in themselves that he called island uh, universes. And basically we, we did eventually figure out as, as, uh, as all peoples on this earth that these are humongous groups of trillions of stars plus clusters, nebula, and uh, our own Milky Way is, is just such one group. And uh, the, the one person I suppose who, who was the, the culmination of, of sort of a, a greater uh, global work of knowledge was Edwin Hubble who, uh, who first uh, actually measured Cepheid variables in the nearby galaxy Messier 31 M31, um, which was really first, you know, located by Al Sufi back, uh, you know, in in the 980s. Um, and anyway, Hubble, Hubble determined that this was about two and a half million light years away, um, and had uh, a large population of uh, nebulas and clusters and and these Cepheid variable stars all on its own. Um, but it's the distance that makes them so faint. So some of the things uh, are faint because they're, they're small or they're relatively close and maybe in our own um, galaxy and, uh, and sort of the general scheme of things, they're really not that bright. But when you take like a whole galaxy in itself um, and you, you place it at a humongous distance of millions of light years away, uh, it will sort of appear equally as faint as, as like, a, like another nebula in the nighttime sky. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and to me, there's nothing more humbling uh, than looking through the eyepiece and seeing multiple galaxies in one field of view, and then extrapolating how many stars I'm looking at, and you know, solar systems, and on and on and on. Uh, it's it it always um, leaves me in awe when uh, when I have some of those observations. And uh, coming up here in spring. Um, you know, we, we have a great opportunity for this. And, and really what I'm referring to here is galaxy clusters. So just like stars cluster up, mm -hmm. galaxies kind of cluster up as well and have gravitational impacts on each other. And um, one of the most famous ones is in Virgo and it's Markarian's chain. Mm -hmm. And um, if you just pan through there with, you know, modest aperture, you will be astonished at how many galaxies uh, you're able to uh, observe. And many of them all in one field of view. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty neat. And there's, there's all kinds of different types of galaxies as well. There's, there's edge on galaxies and spiral galaxies and barred spirals, uh, elliptical, irregular, spheroidal. I mean, the, the dwarf galaxies, the, the list goes on and on. It almost seems like, like sometimes it almost seems like every galaxy must be its own 
galaxy type, but uh, of course that isn't exactly true. But uh, originally they had like this tuning fork. I think Hubble was the guy that came up with this tuning fork and it had like the different types. And then they've added branch after branch after branch on, onto that over the years. There's some neat diagrams uh, you can find online, which it seems like there's dozens and dozens of different types that they've uh, now discovered. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, there, there's certainly a, a, a decent number of bright galaxies that um, are visible mm -hmm. in just about every telescope and in some larger apertures really start to show some amazing detail. But, um, you know, if you, if you are a galaxy hunter or you love observing galaxies, this is really where the big aperture game starts and finishes. <laughs> you know, if you, uh, if you really like yeah. looking at galaxies, this is where, you know, 12 inches and more of aperture really become uh, advantageous. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to be looking at, at these sort of things you want, you know, and really with any nebula cluster um, galaxy, you're going to want to get to darker sites and, mm -hmm. uh, and especially with the galaxies increasing that aperture. Now with clusters, you know, if you increase the aperture too much, um, especially with like an open cluster, the open cluster just disappears and you could be just looking at a few stars almost in the field of view. So um, mm -hmm. that's why, you know, like we really enjoy looking at open clusters because binoculars, small telescopes are, are perfect for looking at those. Um, and then, uh, you know, the nebula as well. But when you get into the, uh, the, the galaxies and some of the fainter globular clusters, yeah, those, those big telescopes are, are really fun to look at, especially when you're not bothered with having to own one. So I uh, enjoy getting out to star parties and, and sneaking some peeks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So anything else to add on this, this tour of our, uh, of our deep sky objects and uh, sort of a very basic introduction to, to deep sky observing and kind of as, as we go forward here, I think we'll, uh, try to explore uh, the, this path a little bit further. We'll get into maybe talking about uh, some of the other early uh, catalogers of the nighttime sky, like Messier, and mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe talk about Herschel a little bit uh, in coming episodes. Yeah, yeah. And another thing I'd like to um, to touch on it in a future episode regarding historical uh, astronomy and observing is um, you know to go beyond just kind of the Eurocentric history. Um, you know, the indigenous peoples of all lands really across the planet um, have a history of looking mm -hmm. at the night sky. And while it may not be cataloged the way Ptolemy or some of these others have done it, um, there's, they, they have very interesting stories of the sky that were often passed down verbally um, and or mm -hmm. cataloged in a way in terms of, you know, paintings or, or things of the, you know, more, more like of a pictorial uh, catalog cataloging or, or sort of history of observation. And I'm fascinated by mm -hmm. that. Um, particularly in yeah. Canada, you know, our, our indigenous, yeah. uh, history, um, the, the star stories are amazing. And, uh, I have a couple of books, uh, related to that, that I, I really need to dig into, but, um, I just love the different perceptions of the sky, uh, but also, you know, what they saw, um, you know, in, in times of no light pollution, um, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, it's just fascinating to me. So anyway, at some point in the future, um, yeah. we'll, we'll key in on that yeah. stuff too. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, that's all I got. Beautiful. Anything else to anything else to add, Shane? Do you want to send out a thanks or anything? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to give another shout out to our ongoing uh, Patreon supporters. 
so a big thank you to uh, Larry, Eric, Bob, James, Jacques, and Phil. Really appreciate your support. And um, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. And thanks so much for joining us, Shane. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.